Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. Now, I'm going to ask your permission at the beginning, realizing that I really don't need it, but I'm going to ask it, all right? This morning, we're going to turn a couple of places in Scripture. So what I want you to say is, I'm ready to turn, all right? So on the count of three, everybody's going to say, I'm ready to turn. One, two, three. Now, that wasn't convincing at all. I knew it wouldn't be. You don't look like, you know, it's, it's the middle of the summer. I don't know if you know this or not, but today is the longest day of the year. Did you know that? It's summertime. It's officially summer today, the first day of summer, which means there's more sun today than any other day. So there's no reason to be tired. No reason at all to be tired because it's sunshine outside. It's a beautiful day. And so I want you to say, I'm ready to turn on the count of three. One, two, three. All right, good, because we're going to turn to three different passages of Scripture during the sermon. All right? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get three sermons. Maybe. It means that we're going to look at three parts of the idea of Jesus being a man. Take your Bibles and start with me in John chapter 1. And this week I was uh, flipping through the television stations, uh, trying to find something on to watch, and the reality is there was nothing. And as I was flipping through, I was caught by a song. It's a country song, and some of you in this this room are country fans, and some of you aren't, and that's all right. I used to be a big country fan, don't listen to it much anymore, but there's a particular artist that when I see him, sometimes I'll stop because occasionally his songs are good, and it's an artist named Brad Paisley. Some of you are familiar with him. And his new song, I guess it's his new song, it's one of his newer songs, is a song about still being a guy. How many of you heard that song? Let me see your hands. All right. You've got country music fans all over the place. That's good. And in the song, the basic idea is that in our culture, sometimes guyness is under attack. Now, I don't know if guyness is a word, but it should be. Guyness is under attack. And that all around us, people are telling us that we can't be guys anymore. And you think, well, what in the world does that have to do with the sermon? Here's what it has to do. I believe that as we look at who Jesus was as a human, as a man, one of the things that has come under most attack in the life of Jesus is His guyness. And I'm not trying to be politically uh, incorrect or trying to, to do anything to kind of raise, but the truth is that Scripture teaches us that Jesus came as a man, right? And the truth is that Scripture teaches us that he was a carpenter. Now, you may or may not know this, but the word for carpenter in the original language in the original Hebrew and Greek is kind of a dual understanding word. And so he was either a carpenter as we understand, you know, building things out of wood, a woodworker, or there's another understanding where he was an agricultural farmer. Either way, both of those professions are hard-working professions. Amen? I mean, my family... A couple of generations ago, were farmers. My dad grew up doing farm work, and he grew up picking cotton in West Tennessee before they had combines to pick cotton. He tells me stories of growing up in West Tennessee, and they used to get out of school for two weeks vacation to go pick cotton. Sound about spring break kind of thing, you know. Now, it wasn't in spring, it was in the fall, but it was hard work. And the truth is that Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, was 
was someone who grew up with his dad and as soon as he could swing a hammer or work the ground was doing that and probably had calluses on his hand. He probably had uh, strong muscles, but the truth is that he was a guy. And one of the things that I think we do sometimes in trying to exalt the Savior, which is all we should be doing, one of the things that we do too often is we diminish His humanity. And what I want us today to do is to be shocked by how human Jesus was. John chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read a little bit here. And then we're going to get to verse 14, which we're going to focus on the first part of the sermon, then we'll move from there. But the first part of John chapter 1 is just a brilliant poem about who God is or who Jesus is. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. We're back to the Word. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did... To those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, builds this stage of this great idea, this great Logos word of God Himself, of creation, all things created by Him. And then verse 14 is one of the most shocking statements in all of Scripture. The Word, God, Jesus, the Son became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. J.I. Packer on your handout and on the screen says, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as to the truth of the incarnation. What John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us is that the thing that we need to understand about Jesus in the flesh is that it all started with an act. And that act simply was the incarnation. The act was incarnation. Now if you take that word apart and you figure out what it means, it means to come in and carnal, carnality, carnivore, any of that stuff talks about flesh. And so what the word actually means is that God came in the flesh. I like John chapter 1 verse 14 in the message paraphrase that simply says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The Word became flesh. You know what I like about that passage of Scripture, the paraphrase there in the message, is the essence it gets when it says, and moved into the neighborhood. 
You see, if you look at the original language, the words uh, made his dwelling among us, moved into the neighborhood, the actual words are pitched his tent among us. He, he put his tent down. He, he stayed here. He settled here. He came not just in a passing moment, but he stayed here for us. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. When you think of how human Jesus was, what the Scriptures tells us about it. Max Lucado, in a book he wrote, God, God Came Near, has this interesting thought about it. He says, angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with Him and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to His sermons well. Jesus probably had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on Him. It could be that His knees were bony. One thing's for sure, He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, He would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. He got His feelings hurt. He got tired and His head ached. For many of us, to think of Jesus in such a way almost seems irreverent. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the Incarnation, but don't do that. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of His eyes. Pretend He never snored or blew His nose or hit His thumb with a hammer, but in doing so, you lose the Jesus of the Bible. He was just like us. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it tells us that, they were, uh, that He had nothing in His appearance to make us drawn to Him. You know, sometimes people ask me, well, what do you think Jesus looked like? And people have tried to capture that for years. In fact, on the screen are being seen some of the, the pictures that have come throughout the history about what people think Jesus may have looked like. And here's one of the things that I can tell you almost assuredly about these pictures is they're all wrong. Now, I don't know what Jesus looked like. I have no idea. But the truth is, He probably did not have long, flowing hair. I know that messes up some of your theologies right now. Some of you grew up with the picture on the bottom right of the screen there being your picture of Jesus. That's Jesus right there. But that was painted in the early 1900s. Jesus may or may not have had a beard. He was probably short. Most Jewish men of that day were around five foot tall. He would not have been an attractive man. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's what Isaiah tells us. He was not... What's interesting to me is when you look at all these movies of Jesus, these pictures of Jesus, He's always very attractive. I mean, they try to make Him attractive, try to make Him look nice, but Scripture teaches us if He's one or the other, He's probably was... Not good looking. And we don't know what Jesus looked like. And that's not the important thing about who He is. What's important is that we understand how He lived. Let me just tell you some things that Scripture teaches us. And in a minute we'll list five things that I kind of put them into categories. But, but listen to these, these things about Him as a man. He, he was born of a woman. 
He had normal body of flesh and bones. He grew up as a boy. He had a family. He obeyed his parents. He worshipped God and prayed. He worked as a carpenter. He got hungry and thirsty. He had to ask for information. He was stressed. He was astonished. He was happy. He told jokes. He had compassion. He had friends that he loved deeply. He gave compliments. He loved children. He celebrated holidays. He went to parties and he loved his mom. Now, you could write that about anybody almost in this room. He was just very human. Very human. Here's what is amazing to me about Jesus. It's not hard for me to believe in a God that's overseeing everything that we know. I've just seen too many things in my life that have made me think that this is not all there is. There's a longing within my heart that says that this can't be all that there is. What amazes me about our God is that He cared enough about us to lay aside His glory and to become one of us. As I've said before, What is amazing about God is that He left where we're trying to go to come where we're trying to leave so that we could leave where we are now to get where He was. I mean, our goal in life is to get to heaven, right? Jesus was there for eternity. And He left. He said, I'm done. I'm going down. I'm helping out because I want to show them what life is all about. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So how did he live? What does it mean that he pitched his tent, came into our neighborhood? Here are five things that I think Scripture teaches us that Jesus did in his life. First of all, Jesus had fun. Now, I know that for many of you, the first thing that you would think about about Jesus was not necessarily having fun. You know what what most non-believers say about Christians? They, They list three characteristics they think about Christians. And the first one is that Christians are boring. Now, I think that's a bad reputation, but I've also met some boring Christians. Amen? I mean, the Scripture teaches that Jesus had fun. You know what Jesus was never accused of? Being boring. You know what He was accused of? Having way too much fun. Pharisees got on to Him, right? Why? Because He always went to the parties. Jesus' first... Miracle was performed where? At a wedding. You know, those boring, no fun occasions. Now, is that what weddings are? Well, maybe some have turned into that in places elsewhere, but a Jewish wedding was a week-long party. I was watching uh, another show the other day, Flipping Through, and they showed a, a modern version of, a, of a, an Orthodox Jewish wedding. And there were people everywhere singing and dancing and and jumping around. And the bride and the groom who, who were getting ready to commit, you know, to have the ceremony, they had a sheet up in the middle. And around the side, they were throwing them up in chairs so that they could see each other over the top of the sheet. And everybody was jumping around and having a good time. And I thought, Jesus' first miracle was at a scene just like that. And I can just envision Jesus in there singing and jumping and running around and somebody coming up to him and saying, uh, we've run out of wine, can you do something about that? When the Pharisees really got onto Jesus, they were saying, you can't be the Messiah because you have too much fun with sinners. You hang around with tax collectors. You hang around with prostitutes. You hang around with people you shouldn't be hanging around with. You're having too much fun. This is the question I ask. When was the last time as Christians or as a church we were accused of having too much fun? This week we had a group of kids go to Center Kid and 
the adults came back and had a great week. And you know what uh, I love about those kind of camps is when the kids go, they learn about God, they learn about Christ, they learn all those things, but they do it just having fun. One night, uh, one of the chaperones on the trip, who remain nameless, but she understands more about what it means to move into a tent uh, after a week in the mountains. She called me, and I could not understand a word she was saying because people around her were having too much fun. And I just thought, how close to Jesus that is because that's who he was. Here's the second thing. Not only did he have fun, but he lived passionately. He lived passionately. Living around Jesus was not a calm experience. If you want an example of this, just go home and read the book of Mark. Mark is the gospel that, is, that just goes from one thing to another. And then I love how he portrays Jesus, not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He portrays Jesus as passionate. One of my, uh, one of my papers in a, one of my PhD classes a couple of semesters ago was on a guy named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a Major League Baseball player who turned into a great preacher, revival preacher. And Billy Sunday was animated, and somebody asked him, do you think Jesus approves of your tactics? And he quoted and said, is quoted as saying, listen, I can tell you this, Jesus was the greatest scrapper who ever lived. He lived a passionate life. Just look at the book of Mark. He starts off the whole book yelling at complete strangers, telling them to repent of their sins. Shortly thereafter, he orders some guys to quit their job and to follow him. The next chapter, he's telling a demon to shut his mouth and a leper to go be quiet too. In the second chapter, that's all in chapter 1. In the second chapter, he picks a fight with some religious people, breaks into their service on equivalent of a Sunday morning, makes a sandwich with the communion bread because he's a little hungry. In the third chapter, Jesus gets angry and grieves. He ignores his own mom. In the fourth chapter, he rebukes the wind. In the fifth chapter, he kills about 2,000 pigs. In the sixth chapter, he offends some people. In the seventh chapter, he, some religious people have some questions, and he calls them hypocrites and goes on a tirade about them. In chapter 8, he sighs in frustration, spits on a handicapped guy, and calls Peter Satan. In chapter 9, he says, how long do I have to put up with you? That's just before telling some other people to cut off their hands, cut off their feet, gouge out their eyes. In chapter 10, he tells a rich guy to sell all his stuff, give the money to the poor. In chapter 11, he has one of his guys take a donkey without asking and then proceeds to curse and kill a fig tree. He goes on to loot some small businesses, whip some small business leaders who were decent tax-paying individuals. In the next chapter, he tells some Sunday school teachers that their eternal destination is not heaven, but hell. In chapter 13, he threatens to destroy the temple and the nation goes on heightened security alert. In chapter 14, Jesus yells at his friends for taking a nap late at night when they've been running all over the place for three years. In chapter 15, the people kill him because of who he was. And everybody seems to be fine with it except for a few women. The story ends in chapter 16 with him alive again and the trembling, astonished, frightened disciples finally getting it, heading out to offend the whole world with the gospel. Jesus lived a passionate life. And he calls us to do the same. Three other things real quickly about him. He experienced physical needs. You know, there's seven last sayings on the cross and some of them are deep theological statements. Statements like, it is finished. Statements like, 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. There's family statements where he looks at his mom and he looks at John, the disciple he loves, and he breaks that relationship so that they'll take care of each other. But there's also this one that's just kind of strange in the middle of what he says. is just two words, I thirst. Jesus, when he talked for, for hours upon hours, experienced a dry mouth. When he walked all day without some food, he got hungry. He wasn't supernatural in his human abilities. What he did was he experienced life like we did. He also felt sorrow. He had difficulties. People took advantage of him. One of his best friends betrayed him. One of his best friends died. The shortest verse in all of Scripture just says, Jesus wept. He felt sorrow. The truth is that there are not any emotions in your life that you have ever felt that Jesus did not also understand. And here's the last thing is he underwent temptation. He allowed himself to come into the place where he was tempted Now what's interesting about all of that when you look at it, it just seems to me that even though He was Lord of all creation, that everything that has ever been created was created by Him first, that He was also allowing Himself to be one of us. Somebody says, well, how did He do that? The truth is, I don't know. And and metaphors never really work, but this is what I, I symbolize it or I think about it sometimes in my mind. But he was much, much more powerful than any of us, but he limited himself. It's kind of like there are times when Luke and Eli want to wrestle a little bit. And while we're wrestling, at this moment in time, and I know that very soon this will not be the case, at this moment in time, I am bigger and I am stronger than they are. And at any moment, I could hurt them. But here's the thing. When I'm wrestling with them, oftentimes I will let myself get into positions where they can hit on me or win whatever's going on. When I play uh, computer games with, with Eli, we are working at it and it's almost as if we're at the same level, even though I have more experience. I lessen myself. Now that's a small example of the way Jesus did, but what He is is that He limited Himself so that He could be a part of us. Why? What's the reason? Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, here's the reason He did it. He did it for God's glory and for our rescue. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews is a great book written to some people that were thinking about leaving the faith and God doesn't want them to leave the faith, and so He picks an author that we still don't know who the author is. A lot of ideas out there, but nobody really knows. Only God knows. And only God knows who the author is, and that's important because only God is the one that matters about the message that's coming through. And what He's telling them is, listen, you, you were formerly Jews. You were people that followed the way of the Old Testament, but my Son has come and He's better. And in chapter 2, He starts to tell Him why He's better. and It, it all revolves around God's glory and our rescue. Four things come out of this passage. First of all, we see that it is not like the angels that He subjected to the world about which you are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. 
And putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Here's the first thing that God did through Him coming as a human. Why He had to be as a human. First of all, He reclaimed man's lost dominion. If you remember back in in Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve and He puts them in the garden and He says, Now, you are to rule over everything you see. You are to be ruler and master over this world. But what happens is Adam and Eve sin and as they fall, they lose that control. And what God did in sending Jesus as a human, the perfect human, the one that never sinned, is that He reclaimed that lost dominion. Now it says in the Scripture, we don't see that yet. The truth is that we don't see our dominance over the world yet. But it has been established in Christ and will come to fulfillment. You know, right now, one of the biggest issues in our country is global warming. And... There are lots of issues around global warming, and the truth is, if you ask me the scientific data and you present everything you know, my answer is, like a lot of things in life, I don't understand it all. Have we contributed? I don't know. Is it possible? Yes. Is it possible? No. Yes. I mean, it's all over the place. Nobody knows. Anybody tells you that does? They don't know what they're talking about. But here's my point about that. I'm not concerned about a huge global catastrophe someday because of global warming. Now the truth is that we ought to be good stewards of what God has given us, and that includes the earth, and we need to take care of it. But what I know is that God is in control of all that is happening. And God's not going to let us mess up to the point that He can't reclaim it. And what has happened in Jesus Christ is that He is reclaiming His earth, and He's doing that in a process, but He started that again. Not only did His humanity do that, but because of His humanity, He has brought many sons to glory. That's what it says in verse 10, "...and bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of thy salvation perfect through suffering." And so what He says here is that Jesus is the one that brings us to glory. There's this idea here that He is our captain. He is the one that is steering us where we need to go. That He is showing us how we ought to live. That He is telling us what ought to be done in our lives. That as His life is an example, we ought to live like Him. But even more than that, His humanity also was able to disarm Satan and defeat death. He was able to disarm Satan and defeat death. In the book of Romans, there's this whole discussion about the fact that sin came in the world through Adam, a man. And that sin had to be expelled from the world by another Adam or man. And that man is Jesus. Here's the basic idea. It's best illustrated in the old Billy Graham bridge illustration. Some of you remember that. You've seen it in tracks. Some of you may not. But the picture is that on one side we've got God who is perfect in every way, and on the other side we've got us, and in between us is this huge chasm, this huge canyon that we can't cross. And that Jesus in His life, death, resurrection, came and made a bridge for us to get to God in order that Satan was defeated and death is no more. One of my favorite verses of Scripture is that verse that says, Where 
O sin is thy victory. Where, O death, is thy sting? Where is it? It's gone. But here's the last, and I think the most important for us today. He presented us with a sympathetic Savior. Look at verse 14. It talks about the death that comes through, 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 uh, to the devil through his life. But it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, and that is the devil. There are a lot of things in Scripture that prove Jesus' love for us. Verse 17 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There are a lot of things in Scripture that tell us God loves us. There's the verse in John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that He gave. Right? There's the verse that says that, that um, we love Him only because He first loved us. There's the verse in Scripture that tells us that without Him, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There's a verse in Scripture that said that there are many who would die for a righteous man, but no one would die for an unrighteous man, and yet Christ has given His life for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a lot in Scripture that tells us that He loves us. But let me tell you one of those things that's not as obvious, and it's a number, and it is the number 33. You can write that down somewhere. The number 33 tells me Jesus loves us because what I find out in Scripture is that He lived on this earth for 33 years. Let me just tell you how I would do it if I were God. I would have come to earth in a week, appeared on the scene in Jerusalem, gone through the death and resurrection and all of that, and then gone back to heaven, been here as short of time as possible. And the Scripture from what we can see, if He would have lived a week of a sinless life, it would have been okay for Him to die and go back to heaven. Everything would have been paid. Everything would have been put right. But that's not the plan God chose. Instead, God chose to come to earth in the form of a human and to live on this earth, this dark, dirty earth, to be spit upon by people that He created, to be laughed at by people He created, to be mocked by people He created, to be hung on a cross by people He created. And He lived here for 33 years just so when you and I are going through a difficult time he can say I've been there just so when you are faced with a temptation that you don't know the way out he can look at you and say I have been there scripture teaches us that we have a savior who is not unsympathetic to where we are he is with us in every way you can imagine he knows what you are going through there is not a person in this room today is going through a situation that god in the person of jesus christ has not walked through himself now the particulars and the details may be different but the principles are the same that is an amazing Look at what this verse of Scripture says a little later in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. I love that imagery. Uh, for some reason when I read that, I think about playing in a sandbox and, and picking the sand up and the sand just slips through your fingers. You can't grab it. He says, don't let that happen. Grab onto it because we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. 
He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to Him, get what He's ready to give, take the mercy, accept the help. And the older versions of that it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. You want one of the most tragic things about the churches of today in America, in Nashville area, all across America, is that if you ask people out there, they'll say that the churches of today, a lot of them are out of touch with reality. They, they act like everything's okay, everything's wonderful, and they're not in touch with where I am right now. And the truth is, if we are out of touch with reality and where people are, we are as far away from the Savior as we can be. Because He knows everything that's happening, and He has been there. Let me just tell you this word of encouragement to you here today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what difficulties are there. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know family situations. I don't know job situations. I don't know any of that. But let me tell you, some of you in this room today are going through some things and you think nobody understands. Nobody cares. Nobody's been here. The truth is you may not be able to find another person in this room that has, but you have a Savior who has been there. And He wants you to come to Him. In fact, he told people, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Put your burdens on me and I'll give you rest. Here's the last thing. So what do we do with it? We live with the mind of Christ. We live with the mind of Christ. One last turn and we're done. Philippians chapter 2. Here's an interesting thing about Philippians chapter 2. Most people think this is an early hymn. You'll see verses 6 to 11 are kind of set apart. and Most people think that, that Paul, in writing to the Philippians, was quoting a song that they would have sung. You know, the truth is that we don't sing a song that Jesus sang. Right? I mean, there, there's no song in your hymnal that Jesus ever sang. Right? You, you with me there? They, they hadn't been written yet. Just a little idea. If it says copyright 1940. Jesus wasn't around to sing that. In the, in the, on the Sabbath, he wasn't there singing in the synagogue. And this is not a hymn that Jesus sang, but here's what's interesting. Philippians is one of the books that we think was written earliest of all the books in the New Testament. And so what you have here, if this is an early hymn that was well known enough, that you probably have one of the earliest hymns ever written about Jesus. It's kind of a neat little side note. I don't know of anybody that's put any music to it recently, but that's what it is. We don't have the music notes. They didn't seem to want to write those down. But what we have here is this beautiful picture. And verses 6 through 11 tells all about Jesus and his coming to earth, about his limiting himself, that being in the very nature of God, that picture again that you can't grasp on to that equality, you can't hold on to it. But he made himself nothing. He made himself a slave. Literally, it's what that word means. He took on the nature of a slave, made in human likeness, being found in appearance humbled himself, became obedient to death, everlasting, becoming lasting, uh, immortal, becoming mortal. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then God exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
But this is a strange passage by Paul because what he does is he puts the application before he puts the exposition. Before he tells us about Jesus, he tells us how we ought to act. What it tells us in verses 2, 3, and 4 is that there are three things that we ought to live with in the church and in our lives if we're going to live as Jesus lived as a human. First of all, we need to live in unity. Verse 2. After he says, if you've got any encouragement, if you've got any comfort, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. The idea there is that Christ, in one with His Father, in one with the Spirit, came and did what they had to do. And they did it in a unified fashion. And that as followers of His, because of what He has done, we ought to live in unity with one another. Now that usually only comes when we're doing the second thing in verse 3, and that's when we're living with humility. Verse 3 says, do nothing. Say that with me. Say, do nothing. Do nothing. You know, nothing is one of those words that means the same thing wherever you look. In the Old, in the, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, in the English, it all means nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4 tells us the third thing. We need to live with sensitivity. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. I just want you to think about for a minute how Jesus lived those out. Being unified with the Lord, understanding the Lord's purpose, He came to earth, even though that would not be the top-notch thing to do. He, he didn't do it because of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He didn't do it because He was looking after His own interests. But He came in humility. He came in a manger. He came to a simple carpenter. He came and lived 30 years in obscurity. He came and He lived 30 years without making any splash on the world. And then for three years, the only notoriety He got was sometimes because He was infamous more than He was famous. In humility, He did it because He considered others better than yourself. Here is the King of glory, the King of all creation, the One who spoke words into existence, caring more about us than He cared about Himself. That you should not look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. He did it for us. As we're looking into the life of Jesus and who He is and what He intends for us to do, the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for us? And one of the things that we can understand is that because He is high and holy and wonderful, and as we talked about for the last couple of weeks, that He is the Lord of all that we see, that we need to worship Him and serve Him completely. But what we must also understand is that He gives us as a human this plan to treat other people as He treated us. And we need to live like He called us to live. 